Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a cardiac surgeon tells about a minimally invasive way of treating atrial fibrillation. We don't stop the heart using the heart or lung machine, and the recovery from that is very quick. And the results from it are that about 80% to 95% have their AFib completely eliminated. We'll also talk with him about heart valve disease and how some valves can be repaired rather than replaced. And we'll learn about the special importance this year of making sure you get the flu vaccine. Given the anticipated circulating flu viruses and the COVID pandemic, that all this could potentially overwhelm hospitals and their ability to care for people who need services. All that along with a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about heart valve disease and how some valves can be repaired rather than replaced. We'll also talk with a doctor of family medicine about why the flu vaccine is especially important this year. But first, a cardiac surgeon tells about a minimally invasive option for treating atrial fibrillation. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you or someone you care about have problems with atrial fibrillation or a heart valve, you may be exploring your options. Today, I'm talking about these issues with Dr. Stephen Waterford. He's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate, specializing in cardiac surgery. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Waterford. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm anxious to hear about the procedures you offer, but first I'd like to ask you what drew you to the specialty of cardiac surgery. Growing up, did you have loved ones who dealt with cardiac problems? I didn't, but I wanted to be a doctor from a young age, and I was drawn to cardiac surgery because I think the relationship that we have with our patients is a very special one. It's a short uh, time, uh, but it's a very special uh, experience, and we're often able to restore people to a much better level of health, which is very rewarding. Let's talk about atrial fibrillation. This is a condition that affects some 2.7 million Americans. Can you give a description of what that is? Yes, atrial fibrillation is an irregular rhythm of the heart that predisposes people to have heart failure, symptoms like palpitations and shortness of breath, and ultimately can lead to strokes as well, which is one of the major problems with this heart rhythm. So if people experience those symptoms and come to their doctor, what is done to diagnose atrial fibrillation? One can start with getting an EKG in the office and that will often show the rhythm. If it doesn't show the rhythm, then people can have a heart monitor, which they wear at home for anywhere from one day to one week. And those often pick up on episodes of atrial fibrillation that are not apparent on a single EKG recording. Now, is this something that's liable to affect uh, older people? Yes, the rate of atrial fibrillation rises as people age. It's related to high blood pressure, sleep apnea, diabetes, uh, and so there's so many reasons people can have atrial fibrillation, but it's really exploding in its prevalence. And pretty soon we're going to have about five or six million Americans that have atrial fibrillation. Is it, uh, Is it equally affect men and women? Yeah, I think it's pretty common with um, both genders and um, the number one thing that predisposes is just getting older, really. Now, you mentioned that it increases um, the risk of a stroke. Is that why AFib is so dangerous? Yeah, I think it is one of the major reasons. About 20 or 25 percent of all strokes in America are caused by atrial fibrillation, 
And the strokes that you get when you have atrial fibrillation are actually more severe than an ordinary stroke because atrial fibrillation causes blood clots to form in the heart. And when those move into the brain and cause a stroke, it's actually a bigger stroke than one would normally have from, say, high blood pressure. So when someone is diagnosed with AFib, how urgently does it need to be treated? Is this something that has to happen like that day? Right. I think it varies by patients. There's some people who it's better to try to get out of atrial fibrillation right away. If, for example, you know that it's just started in the last day or so because you can feel it, those folks, it's often better to get out right away. For everybody else, it's usually not an emergency, and one can try a, ver a variety of medicines to try to manage it before any procedures are performed. Well, so you mentioned medication. So sometimes medication might be able to control it. Yeah, that's right. So I would say there are really two approaches. One is to try to control the rate, to slow the heart rate down, and that can make people feel better. The other approach is to give medicines that try to actually get rid of the rhythm itself and put the patient's heart back into a normal rhythm. And so there are two different strategies that cardiologists can pursue to manage atrial fibrillation. What are the surgical options that are left? Sure. So I would say that many people go in and out of atrial fibrillation. They're not always in atrial fibrillation. Our word for that is paroxysmal. Those patients are best treated by an electrophysiologist who can perform a catheter-based procedure we call an ablation. And that's successful for the vast majority of people with this form of atrial fibrillation. The second group, though, is people with what we call chronic atrial fibrillation, meaning you're always in AFib. And for many of those patients, it's very difficult for a cardiologist to do a catheter-based procedure to get rid of that type of AFib. And that's where I offer a minimally invasive procedure that can get rid of AFib in our surgery department. Okay, that's and just to describe that very briefly, we offer here at Upstate a procedure called a TT maze. And this is a small incision operation with less than one centimeter holes in the chest. And we place various uh, fancy equipment in through the, those small incisions that get rid of the atrial fibrillation. The advantage of that procedure is that there's no cut in the center of the chest. There's no large cut called a thoracotomy in the side of the chest. We don't stop the heart using the heart or lung machine. And the recovery from that is very quick. And the results from it are that about 80% to 95% have their AFib completely eliminated. Now, how does this procedure actually do the eliminating? Right, good question. So we use um, devices that are called radio frequency devices that ablate the AFib. And we place those on the outside of the heart. And you can think of those like little heating pens. And these heating pens just burn off the AFib from the heart. The other major advantage of this procedure is we permanently close the stroke center of the heart. So when someone's in atrial fibrillation, the strokes only form in one little neighborhood of the heart called the left atrial appendage. You can think of that like the stroke center. So what we do in this procedure is we place a clip off the stroke center and it's completely gone so that you can never have a stroke from atrial fibrillation going forward. To me, that's about half of the benefit of the procedure is just that you can rest assured that you're not going to have a stroke, even if you don't take Coumadin, Xarelto, Eliquis, Pradaxa, blood thinners. This clipping of the appendage, this clipping of the stroke center, really gets rid of the, the risk of stroke from atrial fibrillation, which I think is very important because in the long run, that's one of the more debilitating things that can happen that's really tragic to someone with AFib is to have a stroke that prevents them from moving an arm or a leg or something like that. So walk me through how this is done from the patient's point of view. Is it an outpatient procedure? 
Sure. So I would say the patient stays a couple nights overnight in the hospital. Uh, procedures around two hours long. You go to sleep at the beginning, you wake up at the end, and you go to a regular recovery room. There's no intensive care. And um, the first morning after the procedure, you walk around a bit. And um, on the second or third day, people will typically go home. And, um, and with pretty feeling pretty good, I think, because there's no major incisions in the chest. Everything's limited to just less than half an inch, all the incisions. And you mentioned that it's 80, 85% effective? Yeah, I would say that the studies on this procedure, first of all, we're one of the few centers in America and, and in the East Coast offering this procedure at the moment. I came up from New York City where I directed an atrial fibrillation program at Mount Sinai Hospital. So we're very fortunate to have this up here for the folks that live in the area. And I would say it's about 80% successful by strict criteria, meaning you have no episodes of atrial fibrillation. If you measure the success by what percent of patients are in sinus rhythm on an EKG in the office, that's 95%. So I would say the clinical success rate is in the 90s. And if you define things strictly, it's around in the 80s. They stay in the hospital for sort of observation for a little while. What are you looking for? Like, what are the common uh, complications that might come up after this? Sure. So some people, after any type of atrial fibrillation procedure, whether it's a catheter-based procedure or a surgical procedure, will have some atrial fibrillation that we get rid of with medicines and cardioversion in the hospital. So that's really the main reason people stay. The other reason is that when we do this procedure, we leave a small little drain in the chest uh, for uh, overnight. So we just monitor that and take those drains out on the first or second morning after surgery. After this quick break, we'll be back with Dr. Stephen Waterford and treatment options for heart valve disease. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. With me is cardiac surgeon, Dr. Stephen Waterford. We've been speaking about atrial fibrillation, and now we're going to turn to the subject of heart valve disease. How would somebody know that they have a problem with one of their heart valves? Yeah, that's a really good question. So some people feel short of breath, and that's really the most common symptom of a valve problem is that you notice you're not able to walk as far or run as far as you used to. You get short of breath or winded going up inclines or up a flight of stairs. For some other people, their doctor will hear a murmur in the chest, and uh, that's the sign of it. Some people simply feel a lot more tired, and when they eventually get an echo or an ultrasound of their heart, they're found to have uh, a valve that's a, a problem. Now, we just spoke about atrial fibrillation. Does atrial fib cause valve damage? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. So atrial fibrillation stretches the valves, and when they get stretched out, they start to leak. And I would also say the opposite's true too. So if you have a leaky valve to begin with, over time, about a third of people will develop atrial fibrillation from that. So they really feed each other. Now, I've heard of people who are born with valve defects, congenital valve defects. But again, is heart valve disease typically uh, affecting the older populations? It is. And so the congenital defects are fairly rare, fortunately. The most common cause is degeneration of a valve from aging. In the aortic valve, it typically gets tighter with age, and that's called aortic stenosis. And the mitral valve typically leaks, and that's an acquired condition. It can happen suddenly, it can happen gradually, um, but it's not that the valve was a problem that when the patient was born, it just develops a leak um, over time. So it sounds like all of us are maybe prone to developing this if we live long enough. 
That's true. In fact, um, in my former practice, we had ultrasounds of all the staff, and we did find um, one or two of the surgeons had a little bit of a leak on their valve. So it's actually quite common to have a small amount of leak, and it's it's much rarer to have a severe leak, but it's um, not unheard of at all. The heart has how many valves? The heart has four valves, and... Um, there's two on the left called the aortic and mitral, and those are the ones that most commonly have a leak because the pressures on that side of the heart are much higher. That's the side that pumps to your brain and your kidneys and liver. So the leak is more uh, common than some of the other. You mentioned, I think, stenosis. Is, what is that? Correct. Stenosis just means it's too tight, and regurgitation is just a leak. And so the most common in the mitral valve is to have a leaky mitral valve. The tight mitral valves are usually in America from rheumatic heart disease. If you've had rheumatic fever as a child, or even if you didn't know you had it, and maybe had some episodes that you didn't have symptoms from, that would be the most common for a tight valve. But a leaky valve is really the most common in adults. Now, what complications do we see that are caused by these different heart valve diseases? And, and are they dangerous? Is it a threatening condition? Good, good question. So usually it's not an emergency. There's some people that develop a leak in their mitral valve all of a sudden, and that is something that we do operate on as an emergency. But for the vast, vast majority of people, the main problems with the leaking valve are a few. So number one, you can develop atrial fibrillation, and that can lead to strokes. Number two, you can get more and more short of breath, even to the point of not being able to lie flat at night. And number three, you can over time develop what's called congestive heart failure. And that's why we've moved in the last 10 years to operating earlier and earlier for these leaks. Because what happens over time is the pump of the heart weakens from the leak. And that leads to heart failure in the long term. Is that a difficult decision for a patient and their doctor to make in terms of when to deal with this? Yeah, I think that's a in recent years, it's gotten a bit easier because currently the official recommendation from the American Heart Association is if you have a severe leak on the mitral valve to have it repaired, even if you're not short of breath. Because what we know is that if you fix those valves before people get short of breath, they actually live longer. And the caveat is you want to have it fixed in a center of excellence that repairs these valves. For the vast majority of adults with a leak, you want to keep your own valve. You want it repaired and not replaced with an animal valve or a metal valve. And in my uh, former uh, job, our specialty was repairing the mitral valve. And so that's an area of expertise for me, having trained with um, the person who repairs the most of these valves in the country right now. So my goal is really when I see a patient with a leak to make sure that they keep their own valve, which will last them in the vast majority of cases for the rest of their life and not have to undergo re-replacements of tissue or animal valves. Now, as a lay person, it sounds to me like a repair, you know, keeping my own tissue would be better than having something implanted. But yes. tell, me, tell me why that's risky to have something implanted. Yeah, very good question. So if you put a metal valve in the mitral position, you have to take very high dose Coumadin or blood thinner, and that can lead to bleeding. If you miss that medication for a few days, say you're on vacation, the valve can clot off and you can have a major stroke. And with the animal valves, they do degenerate at about 10 years in the mitral position. So that requires a re-replacement. And the rate of stroke from those valves while it's not the same as a metal valve, it's probably higher than having your own valve. So really the valve that you were born with is the valve you want to keep for the rest of your life. If you can, now do, do all patients have the option or are there some that the valve is beyond repair? Good question. So I would say for mitral stenosis, where it's too tight, we tend to replace those valves because those valves tend to have little rocks of calcium on them. But if you've just developed a leak, I would say that the vast, vast majority, well over 90% should be repaired. And if it's what we call degenerative leak, then 100% of those valves should be repaired. 
Well, let's talk about how you go about doing that. Is uh, is this a major operation where you open the chest and, and work on the valve? Yeah, it is. We can go either through the front or through the side of the chest for a more minimally invasive approach. And I would say that it's sort of like a plastic surgery on the leaflets of the valve. We reconstruct the leaflets by moving segments around, by removing certain segments. And then also you can think of the mitral valve as a parachute with strings on it. And we'll replace some of the strings on the valve as well. So it's sort of each person's valve is unique. No case is the same. And it's really truly like a plastic surgery on this valve. We inspect it very carefully and tailor each repair to each individual valve. Any patients or contraindications that a patient might have that would make them not a candidate for this type of repair work? Well, I think that in general, I would say that our default option when we see someone with a leak is to repair the valve. Because when you look around the United States at our database in heart surgery, the risk of repairing a valve is half of that of replacing a valve. So the risk of having a problem after surgery in the hospital is about double if you replace a valve. So I would say really that the default should be that we should be in that mode of really repairing valves because it's actually safer for patients to get out of the hospital and get home in a safer manner. After the surgery, what is the recovery like and how soon does someone get back to their normal life? Yeah, I think for the vast majority of people who have a repair, they're otherwise pretty healthy. So we only expect them to stay in the hospital for five days or so and then be at home for an additional week recovering. And then by the third week, we really like to have people going out, going to the mall, going to restaurants and resuming some of their normal activities. What if their normal activities are running marathons or uh, doing some other strenuous activities? Yeah, good question. So I would say for us, it's really just a matter of not doing any heavy lifting for around four to six weeks. And apart from that, let's say you want to go for a run, you can certainly do that three weeks after surgery, as long as there's no heavy lifting, basically. Once the valve is repaired, is everything back to normal? Yeah, I think actually some people, you know, what they constantly say when they've had a valve repaired is, you know, I really didn't realize how symptomatic I was from this valve. I didn't realize how exhausted I actually was. Because we have some people that say, you know what, I'm not specifically short of breath, but they have the valve repaired and they have way more energy. You know, they're not napping a lot during the day. They're able to, you know, play their full course of golf. They're able to do things that they, they really realize how impaired they were from the valve leaking. Well, you mentioned people who might have um, had a valve replacement may have to have it, I don't know, redone years later? Sure. So I would say, for example, if we have, let's say, a 50-year-old man, um, we know we're going to have to reoperate if we replace his valve at around the age of 60, which is why we make such an intense effort to repair those valves. Because if you repair that 50-year-old man's valve, he'll likely live with, the, with that valve for the rest of his life. Now, on the other hand, if you replace a valve at the age of, say, 70, it's not as big of a problem because most likely that patient will live the rest of their life with that valve, even if they make it to, let's say, 85 or 90. Because as it turns out, if you, the older you are, when you have your valve replaced, the longer it lasts. So that's an interesting thing. So in a younger patient, they could chew through a, an animal valve in five or eight years. In an older patient, it tends to actually last longer. In terms of someone who has it repaired, though, that's meant to be a lifetime repair? Yeah. So I would say for about 90, 95% of people, that is all they'll ever need for their valve, which is, which is great news about repairing these valves. So for someone listening to this who's facing this or thinks they'll be facing it, um, do you do opinions? Do you do visits with them to assess whether they're a good candidate? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, I would say we're very happy to see anyone with a leak. And really, about a third of the time, we recommend nothing be done, actually. So I think it's good to just touch base with us and we can follow the valve with an annual 
ultrasound called an echocardiogram and um, provide that sort of guidance as well. If you do end up having the surgery, um, or do you have to take medications afterward? Well, the beautiful thing actually about a valve repair is we have people take a baby aspirin for three or six months, but after that, you don't, it's your own tissue. So you don't need to take any medicines like Coumadin or blood thinners, um, which is, I think, a major advantage of a valve repair. And after the repair, the patient, uh, they're done with you. They don't necessarily come back and see you every year, right? Correct. And I think that's one of the nice things about our specialty is we get to know people really well for a short period of time and we have um, a really meaningful encounter. But what we do like to see is that people are really restored to normal health. That's really our goal is um, as much as we like you not to see you back because you're really fixed. This has been very enlightening. I, I want to thank you to my guest, Dr. Stephen Waterford. He's assistant professor of surgery at Upstate, specializing in cardiac surgery and with some special techniques for heart valve repair and repair of atrial fibrillation. Thank you very much for having me, Amber. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, why health officials are urging you to get the flu shot this year. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Public health officials who have been busy with the pandemic are now also preparing for flu season. Here to share what's most important to know about this year's flu season is Dr. Jared Bagatelle. He's a doctor of family medicine who's the medical director of employee and student health at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Bagatelle. Thank you, Amber. It's great to be here. Well, let's talk about why the flu vaccine is so important this year. Ah, as we've spoken before, uh, the, flu in, the flu vaccine is important every year. But this year in particular, given the uh, COVID pandemic, uh, we know that a flu vaccine is the single most important way to protect folks against influenza. So the vaccine helps protect you and others around you from getting sick or potentially dying from the flu. But there's great concern this year, given the COVID pandemic, that given the anticipated circulating flu viruses and the COVID pandemic, that all this could potentially overwhelm hospitals and their ability to care for people who need services. So more than ever this year, it is profoundly important that everybody get out there and get a flu shot. We must preserve the uh, healthcare resources in our community for everybody for when, when they may need it. Well, the mask wearing and the hand washing that we've become accustomed to, isn't that going to protect us from the flu as well as COVID-19? It certainly helps protect. And it's also important measures to fight against the spread and uh, getting the, the flu. Um, interestingly, Amber, last year when the COVID pandemic hit the United States and here locally, uh, we noticed that since folks were paying attention to social distancing and wearing masks when out in public, that the, um, the flu season seemed to end earlier than uh, previously anticipated by a few weeks. So usually the flu season might typically go into the middle of May. It was uh, slowing down and deemed nearly the end of the flu season by early to mid-April. So it certainly has shown and certainly makes sense that it'll have a, a profound impact on, on limiting the spread and preventing. But the most important way to prevent the flu is to get a flu shot. Now, speaking of like the seasonality of the flu, are the experts predicting a rise in COVID-19 cases as the weather pushes us indoors? Is there some expected seasonality to COVID-19 as well? 
Yeah, Amber, I would I would anticipate and many do anticipate that when it starts getting colder and we start huddling more closely indoors, it's going to be certainly more challenging to maintain social distancing, uh, to be out and about in the fresh blowing uh, summer air. Uh, it'll be blowing cold air, but we'll be more likely indoors. And we know that typically cold and flu season peaks in the winter, uh, be it January or February. And uh, we want to make sure that um, that everybody does their best to uh, maintain proper hygiene when they're indoors as well as, as outdoors. Um, but yeah, we would expect that there will be an increase in respiratory illnesses as we usually see uh, in the winter months. Well, let's talk about the flu vaccine um, for this year. Is there anything in it that's going to help protect us from COVID-19 or is it just for influenza? Hmm, hopeful thinking. Unfortunately, uh, the flu vaccine is specifically uh, developed to help protect us against the anticipated flu strains, and it will not uh, protect us directly from COVID. Well, how effective do we think this year's vaccine is going to be? It's always difficult to predict. Um, and we know that the vaccine is being produced where they did some um, updates to the viruses that are in the vaccine itself in anticipation of what may be potentially spreading. Um, to really know how effective a vaccine is going to be depends on so many factors that are really often difficult for folks to tease out. But primarily, uh, it depends on the individual and the individual's age and health status and when they may have gotten the vaccine, as well as how good the match is with the vaccine. So you put those two things together, we're not quite sure how effective the vaccine is going to be. Um, we do know that uh, studies show that flu vaccines can reduce flu illness by 40 to 60 percent among an overall population of people who get the vaccine during flu season. And we know that uh, even a rate of 40% effectiveness can significantly reduce the number of flu cases, hospitalizations, and death related to the flu. So when the scientists were working to develop this year's flu vaccine, that was during the beginning of the pandemic, right? Or in the, it, they, were, they were well underway when the pandemic became apparent. Did that impact or make it harder for them to develop the flu vaccine? It doesn't seem to have. Um, they, I'm sure, have been keeping their ear to the rail and keeping to their task, which is protecting folks from seasonal flu. And it didn't seem to in that the CDC reports that the flu vaccine manufacturers are projecting as many of a, as 195 to 197 million doses of flu vaccine to be available in the US for this year. That is an incredible amount of vaccine when you pause to think about it. Um, and it's even an increase from last year's record, which was 180 million doses manufactured. So I expect there'll be plenty of flu vaccine to go around. That's good that there won't be shortages. Now, can you tell me, is it available only as a shot or is there a nasal spray alternative? Sure. This year, there is approval for the nasal spray alternative. And I know when we've spoke over the years past, there were a couple of years where the nasal spray vaccine was on hold, uh, primarily out of question regarding its effectiveness uh, and perhaps its consistency with the delivery system given each individual person. But this year, it's available. And folks might think about it uh, as being maybe easier than getting a shot. It certainly may seem less daunting than getting a shot. Um, but it is a unique vaccine in that it is a live vaccine compared to the flu shot, which is an inactivated or a recombinant vaccine, meaning that it can't get you sick. Um, the nasal spray won't get you sick, but it's important that it's only indicated for healthy, non-pregnant people between ages two and through 49. It's not to be used during pregnancy. It's not to be used for people who may have weakened immune systems. 
So if anybody out there is considering a nasal flu vaccine, I would strongly advise that they review this with their personal health care provider before going out and doing so. Well, that leads me to my next question about who needs to get a flu shot this year. As with every year prior, the CDC strongly recommends that everybody over age six months of age get the seasonal flu vaccine. Pregnant or not? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And how soon should we be vaccinated? Because we want the vaccine to carry us through the whole season, right? Is it can we can we get it too soon? That's always a question and concern that people people raise. It's hard to predict when peak flu season is going to arise. But if we go by history, and uh, assuming that history often uh, repeats itself, uh, we're looking at a peak again January February. The flu vaccine in a generally young and healthy person is to be sustainable and immunity sustainable through the flu season. Older folks may not be able to have that longer standing protective immunity. And for that special reason, Amber, folks older than age 65 should talk with their personal health provider about getting the high dose vaccine which uh-huh. is to uh, give them the coverage and the, the extension of coverage that they need. But the CDC recommends that by the end of October, everybody should have received a seasonal flu vaccine. So we're looking at September and October. Get out there and get the flu shot while it's available, certainly before you might get sick with anything that might further delay your ability to get a seasonal flu shot. Get it while it's available. Get it as soon as it's available and realize it takes two weeks for a person to build immunity. So get it before you get sick. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jared Bagatelle. He's the medical director of Upstate's Employee and Student Health, and he's also a doctor of family medicine. Now, I'd like to go over the symptoms of influenza compared with the symptoms of COVID-19. If our community's potentially facing both of these viruses, um, how would we tell which one we have if we start feeling sick? Yeah, so it's a great question. A lot of folks are are asking it. A lot of folks are experiencing uh, symptoms and well uh, as well in their concern. What do I have going on, Doc? What is it? It's not so easy to clinically distinguish between flu and COVID. And testing may actually be needed to better uh, delineate. We know that both are contagious respiratory illnesses. They're caused by different viruses. And there's such a variation on the theme of the presenting symptoms from no to mild to moderate to quite severe, as we've seen with respect to COVID recently across the news. Um, It's also concerning because people may have a period where they're not symptomatic as yet, but they can be contagious. And that's a concern. So for flu, that could be up to a day before you start to show symptoms. And for COVID, it could be up to a couple of days before you start to show symptoms. So if a person starts to show symptoms, some of the symptoms that COVID and flu share in common, again, this is very generally speaking, very broad stroke, generally speaking, because there are so many variations on themes that we've seen, but generally uncommon, both the flu and COVID will present with a dry cough. And both COVID and flu often, but not always, present with a fever. So if you have a cough, particularly a dry cough, one that you haven't been used to having for any other explainable reason, and a fever, then that could be a suspect for either flu or COVID. Um, COVID folks uh, who have the COVID virus may uh, develop shortness of breath and rapid breathing that sometimes occurs. And that doesn't generally happen with flu unless you have an underlying pulmonary uh, condition such as asthma. Uh, Flu, very commonly, we've spoken about in the past, is folks have reported they know the exact minute they began to feel sick. It's often an abrupt onset with body aches and fatigue and headache. And those are common with the flu, but not as common with COVID. 
although sometimes they occur. And the one, what we call pathognomonic, it's a big word, one of the hallmark or telltale symptoms that I may have COVID-19 is this loss of the sense of smell. So if you're in respiratory illness season as we're coming up and you start to develop a dry cough, a fever, and you may be a little short of breath more unusually than so, and you have a loss of sense of smell, it's a high likelihood you've got COVID. Well, between the two, influenza and COVID-19, which is more dangerous? Wow. I, I think, um, you know, they're, they're both certainly quite dangerous, potentially, depending on what the underlying medical condition may be. And it's still real early in the COVID experience to know. Um, we do know that there are a lot of folks who may have mild cases of COVID. We're detecting lots of folks who are asymptomatic and shown to have COVID. Uh, where they never develop symptoms or the symptoms are ever so mild and it wouldn't necessarily be dangerous for them, but it certainly would be dangerous for somebody who is vulnerable. So they can both cause serious illnesses. Um, and even though there's a lot to learn at this time, it does seem as if COVID-19 is more deadly than the seasonal flu, but it's really too early to draw any absolute conclusions given the current data. Uh, time will tell as more people uh, are infected and more people have mild illnesses, we'll be able to gauge uh, the, the, the seriousness and the dangerousness of this, of this virus. For someone who um, maybe doesn't have underlying health conditions but is infected with either the flu or COVID-19, what would you recommend in terms of treatment if they're able to uh, sort of write it out in their home, um, what do they need to have ready to help them make that time a little more comfortable? Yeah, uh, assuming a person's generally healthy and they're, they're um, other, otherwise fit and they know to not have any other concerning underlying medical conditions, it's always good to have some acetaminophen, which is the big generic word often mispronounced even by me, uh, for Tylenol. So having some generic Tylenol on hand to help with any aches or fever can certainly help folks get through some uncomfortable symptoms of, of flu uh, and or COVID. And um, short of that, uh, generally speaking, there's really no routinely recommended over-the-counter medication for colds and flu uh, as a general rule or better than one or the other. It's so hugely commercialized that uh, you, you're coming up uh, on the, the season ahead, the commercials will drown us with uh, what one should do if one feels sick. So I've always sort of heard, you know, fluids and rest. Is that sort of, you start with that? Absolutely. Listen to your body. Stay in tune with your body. Um, be familiar with how it routinely uh, behaves and responds to illnesses and absolutely take care of your body. The time to get rest is as often as you have opportunity to get rest so that you are in as good a shape as you can be before you might get sick. But certainly when you are sick, it's important to get appropriate rest, appropriate fluid, hydration, uh, diet, all those things will be even more important should you get sick with any of these viruses. Are there any warning signs that we need to be looking out for that we shouldn't ignore that would either tell us, you know, get to the hospital or at least, you know, call your physician? Yeah. Amber, that, that's a great question. And it's so important for listeners to know that it is so important to know their personal health and their personal health situation, as well as the resources that they're going to have available to go to should they become sick. But generally speaking, again, folks who have special attention to some personal health matters, health history, including underlying medical conditions like heart disease, lung disease, like COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or asthma, diabetes, weakened immune system. These folks need to be on a higher level of alert because as they may have experienced in the past, respiratory illnesses can develop 
quite quickly and quite severely in folks with underlying medical conditions. Generally speaking, I would advise, Amber, that anyone who experiences severe or progressive shortness of breath, uncontrollable coughing spells that might interfere with one's ability to breathe or eat or drink, maintain hydration or cause faintness, those may likely be signs of more serious complications going on and more concerning disease processes. And uh, certainly, if you're not experiencing any of those severe symptoms, but you have concerns at all about your illness, it's always better to call your doctor's office and talk with a medical professional for any advice and guidance uh, before, certainly before going out to visit a crowded acute medical care facility or going out to a crowded pharmacy to grab your acetaminophen. Um, so, uh, well, let the me best get, advice may come from your doctor who knows you best. Let's get back to the importance of the uh, getting the flu vaccine this year. If a person contracts influenza, is that necessarily going to make them more susceptible to COVID-19 because they're weaker and that sort of thing? It's a really good question, and there certainly could be lots of discussion and debate. We don't know for certain, but we do know that when you get kicked and your system's otherwise uh, at risk or experiencing inflammation for other reasons, uh, it may make us certainly more susceptible to getting kicked harder should we be insulted by another infection or disease process. So it may not necessarily make us more susceptible to contracting COVID, but it may certainly make us more likely to develop uh, more serious illness after being exposed to COVID because we've already been kicked once. You certainly don't want to get kicked twice. And my advice to everybody listening is to go and get your flu shot and to continue practice safe public health measures to keep you protected and wearing your mask and social distancing and washing your hands regularly and not touching your face and getting a flu shot. Well, we certainly appreciate the reminder. Thank you to Dr. Jared Bagatell, a doctor of family medicine who's the medical director of employee and student health at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poet Jennifer Holy's poetry appears in Panoply, Stone Canoe, and Smartish Pace. She was a 2018 AWP mentee and a recent winner of the Silver Needle Press Poetry Prize. She sent us a beautiful villanelle, which also serves as an elegy and loving tribute to a friend. Here is Two Arts. I walk the path where all your pieces lay, down Risley's Gorge, where you buried your art just out of sight, your clay returned to clay. You hid your sculptures off the trodden way. I search, but I'm not quite sure where to start along the path where all your pieces lay. You'll dig them up when you come back, you say. You just can't ship them, they will fall apart. Just out of sight, your clay returned to clay. I hope you might have left one here today by accident. No, you were far too smart. I walk the path where all your pieces lay. You disinterred them when you came to stay. I had no idea when you would depart. Just out of sight, your clay returned to clay. For your memorial, we put them on display. I spoke about you but I did not have the heart to walk the path where all your pieces lay, just out of sight, your clay returned to clay. Slavina Salve Nisan is a medical student at Mount Sinai in New York City. Her work has appeared already in Hectoan International and the Pharaohs. She sent us a poem, Candy Store, and it predates the pandemic, 
but it nicely illustrates the dedication and exhaustion of our frontline workers by describing their very particular candy counter purchases. Candy store for Andy Efros. At three o'clock or so, they start coming in, first slowly, then a whole stream, in need of an extra kick to get through. All very particular. Mini chocolate chip cookies for the NICU nurse. The ones in that green package, please? Tell me that you have them. We lost two babies today. Mint gum for the medic. I'm working way too much overtime. Wait, what day is it? I think I have a date in three hours. A caramel pretzel hazelnut chocolate bar, sticky, salty, nutty, for the vascular surgeon who just repaired three ruptured aneurysms. I dreamt of blood last night again. Three diet sodas for the cardiology fellow. Hey, at least it's diet. I need to keep the weight off. I'm getting married on Sunday. And as for me, I'm partial to those little candies, you know, the blue ones, sweet, sour, childhood. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll explore bias in teaching. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.